This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Smart Art's the name of the program you're listening to. Richard Watts taking you through until midday today here on Triple R 102.7 on uh, the FM dial and uh, streaming around the world at rrr.org.au. Wherever you are today, hope you're having a good morning. Perhaps if you're on Chapel Street, you'll be intrigued by our conversation that is about to take place. We're going to hear all about Art Town 2016, which is an a live arts activation of the Chapel Street Precinct. Joining us in the studio to tell us a little bit more, curator Margaret uh, Ken, uh, Margaret Koenig, I'm sorry, uh, and uh, artists Hayley Salini and Ignacio Rocca. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Hello. Thank you. So, Margaret, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit more about Art Town. This is, I think, the sixth or the seventh year. Seventh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, um, it's the seventh year and um, it's it's a project that's been growing pretty much every year that we've uh, gone ahead with it. Um, and uh, it's it's basically an event, as you know, which, which takes place throughout Chapel Street Precinct um, in some obvious places and, and perhaps in some not so obvious places as well. Um, and that encompasses Greville Street as well. So it's, um, it's, it's a public art project and it really encompasses a wide-ranging um, variation of artistic styles and urban art practices. Um, and um, we've, in the last year, produced a map that the public can pick up to, which is very important because uh, Melburnians love to discover things, especially things to do with the arts, and this will just help guide them through the precinct. Um, but, of course, not every single one of our 91 artists is on that map, nor could they be, because they sometimes change their minds about where they're going to be. Um, so some of them are doing big projects uh, or projects that involve um, public participation like Ignacio and others will be doing much smaller, um, more intimate um, projects of their own, whether it's something to do with their contemporary practice or whether they are in fact plein air painters, um, streetscape painters um, or even like the Melbourne Urban Sketches Group, another great example of our participants. So yes, 91 artists taking part. That's a hell of a lot of art. It is. And taking place across three suburbs, Windsor, Paran and South Yarra, uh, a long Chapel Street and the, the side streets off and around it as well. Absolutely. And even in a few of our retailers also hosting artists uh, uh, where, where appropriate and where they're, they're switched on enough to be wanting to get involved in that. Now, I guess to bring Ignacio and Haley to, into the conversation, for, for each of you, why did you decide to participate when you were invited to, to get involved with Art Town? What was in it for you? Why did you say yes? Um, I think it it's an interesting uh, thing to do as an artist because it takes you out of your comfort zone. It takes you out of your, your studio where you know you have time to think and mull over things and put things aside if they don't work. And it, it kind of brings you into a very public space and people start to engage with you. And, and also, uh, for me, it's kind of a, an opportunity to focus on a really specific subject area and kind of like hone in on an area and do a little bit of site research and things like that. And then you know, something new and unexpected kind of developed out of that. Ignacio? Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm addicted to painting, so I, I, and I really enjoy meeting new people. 
um, and the opportunity to be outside on the streets painting people, uh, it just sounded really good to me to be to be missed. Uh, my project is uh, I, I like to describe it as a, a moments of connection between two strangers. Uh, so basically, what I do, and this is the third time that I've done it, is I sit on the street and I invite people to have a conversation with me for 25 minutes while I'm doing the painting. And um, there's no guarantees that the painting is going to be beautiful or not. Um, most times, they're not. It is. It looks somewhat similar to the person. Uh, but the most important thing to me is to really engage with the person and have that moment of connection. So less about the the outcome itself and, and more about process. Exactly. Yeah. Although the painting at the end, um, it is important, and, and I'm, I'm aware that it has to have a, a somewhat of a resembled of, uh, of the person. But most important is the, the connection between the artist and the community. Um, now, and Hayley, I know you've worked in shop windows before and in s specific locations like yeah. that. Is that. Are you doing that again for Art Town or are you working elsewhere? Um, no, a little bit different this time. I, I'm going to be based uh, in Maddox Street in front of the Windsor Station area, so just off Chapel. Um, and I'll actually be doing a smaller piece. So it's more a, um, ra rather than a large installation this time, it'll be kind of a, a little focused kind of... Um, yeah, but, but continuing your, your usual practice of kind of uh, geometric shapes, yeah, primary colours. continuing right. that. So I've kind of, um, I've looked at the area, I've taken lots of photos, I've done drawings from those photos, I've redrawn those drawings, and so it's kind of like a re-examining of that um, urban space and reinterpretation of that space. Margaret, what is it about these two and their work that made you want to curate them as part of the process? Um, well, obviously they're both extremely accomplished artists and so that's always exciting, although I like to think that all our artists are, have a high level of accomplishment, um, but uh, it's, it's they're also a very interesting um, I wouldn't say ends of the spectrum, although, of course, Haley's an abstract artist, largely speaking. Ignacio is largely a figurative artist in, in many ways and, and, and a little bit of perhaps fantasy as well on that figurative practice. Um, but it's really, um, you know, ad, what, what an artist is going to bring to the project. I could instantly see what both of these two artists is going to bring to the project and how, how broad, like I was just saying um, earlier when we, when we started speaking, how broad we can, we can see um, the, the artworks that are going to come into the Art Town exhibition are going to be. Because, of course, we also have multimedia, we have a bit of sculpture and we have a number of very diverse installation artists as well as all of the others. Now, one of the things that intrigues me about Art Town is the, the live aspect of it, the, the fact that passers-by will see artists working. So, in a, in a way, it is demystifying the, the creative process, taking you out of the studio and, and unshrouding uh, the, the way that you work. Will that be a challenge uh, in terms of people stopping you, questioning you, asking you what's going on and interrupting your creativity, or will you be embracing that side of things? It hasn't been a challenge um so far, <coughs> I, I began this series of 25-minute portraits working with people uh, experiencing homelessness in the city, um, and that was my way of breaking the barriers between me and m my students, I, I'd say. Um, so I used to go and sit there um, and start painting the people that came and talked to me, and somehow, sometimes I ended up having like 20 people 
right at my back saying incredible comments so oh that doesn't look anything like him <laughs> or, or so i uh, i really embrace that interaction with the public and uh, i find that uh, although it distracts me sometimes it also pushes me to re to to take really uh, um, a lot of courage in the decisions that I make with my Mac uh, and my brushes mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I, I think I don't think I'll be too distracted by it. It certainly is interesting, um, especially like people that may not have um, you know any kind of arts background or or interest in the arts before, but they're just a little bit curious as to what's going on here, you know. And they do stop and ask you maybe different kinds of questions that you're not normally used to being asked about your work and they kind of approach it from a, a different point of view. Now, who are some of the other artists who are involved? Well, well, where would we even start? Look, um, the, I, I was going to say the appetite for, for art and culture in Melbourne is, is just never-ending. Um, I think some of the interesting artists... Um, we've got an artist called Tali Bird. Now, she's a regional artist, uh, regional Victoria artist, and she is um, continuing on a project that she has been working on for a couple of years called Sew Your Own Adventure. She creates hand-printed local maps... So she's going to four different locations throughout the precinct. It's extremely rigorous. Um, she, she designs them, paints them, and then prints prints them, um, hand prints them, and passers-by are invited to, with a needle and thread, which she's prepared earlier, to sew their route through that mat area. So it might be a very local map of Paran Town Hall, for example. Um, so they... Uh, you know, I, I'm assuming it takes them maybe five, ten minutes, but they sit down, they stop, take a breath, and then they think, okay, so they sew their way through the little streets that she's printed on these, and that those go together to create a bigger picture. Um, another interesting artist, I, well, we have we have a few street artists every year, and we've actually got a number of them. We've got Sir Circle working in the Ladro area, doing some um, doing some permanent work as well as some um, semi, semi-permanent work, uh, which, is, which is probably going to get uh, painted over. But he's, he works with, you guessed it, a lot of circles. But the way in which he brings those to, to life is, is quite intriguing. We've also got another fantastic artist called Meryn Trevethan, who's uh, won a number of prizes and residencies. She's based in between Melbourne and Singapore. She is also... Uh, one of the things she does is um, large-scale in environmental pieces, interior environmental pieces, but she also uh, works in other areas. She's actually going to be going outside her comfort zone by creating, uh, I believe, the pieces of a Perspex installation at a tiny little shop called Fool in Greville Street. Um, perhaps one of the other interesting things about Art Town, if I can just mention, is um, we're joined this year by Art Walk Melbourne, who, uh, as we speak, in fact, uh, doing a final uh, preparations for the art walk that they're conducting on Sunday. And that's for any members of the public who wanted to go into just perhaps a tiny bit more depth. They're going to be doing um, one of their guided walks through the, a part of the Art Town precinct. I was going to say, they can't do all of it with ni- what, 91 can't. artists involved. No. That, that could be quite a long walk. That would never work <laughs> and they'd have to do it every every one of those days of the two weekends. But um, I think if, if anybody knows about what Art Walk Melbourne do, they're a very uh, known and, and respected um, um, group who, who do take 
uh, gallery tours in the city. Um, they get involved in various Melbourne special events as well and conduct art walks, I'm sure you're aware, and also um, art walks during night art as well. So we don't have any of that yet. Um, give it time. Give it time. We, we Maybe might, by the 10th year. We might be able to do, to do a, a, a night version, which could be a bit challenging in Chapel Street, but, but that's definitely a really good one that uh, people can just uh, have a look on Eventbrite for that one. If you'd like to know more about Art Town 2016, uh, uh, you can go to www.arttown with two t's, arttown.com.au. Uh, the weekend events are happening on the second and the third of April this weekend, this Saturday and Sunday, and then the following weekend, the ninth and tenth of April, with 91 artists in locations throughout the Chapel Street precinct uh, in several suburbs and uh, everything from projection work and street uh, uh, I think there's one projection. There is actually. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but so the, a full range of, of artistic uh, initiatives but I guess a question for, for the two artists who are with us uh, Hayley and Ignacio, there is a prize being offered, is that part of the attraction? Sure. <laughs> sure, yeah, it's there but yeah. Uh, it's not in my radar at yeah. whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge for me is to really engage with the people yeah. and survive the two days. <laughs> <laughs> but Richard, our prize has increased to $5,000 this year. Yes, and a total prize pool of 8000 I believe. That's so, correct. So all the artists participating are eligible for that prize. Uh, and so I recommend that if you're, whether you're in the area already or whether it sounds like something that you want to check out, stroll over to the Chapel Street Precinct either this weekend, the 2nd and 3rd, or next weekend, the 9th and 10th of April, or both weekends perhaps, to explore Art Town 2016. We've been chatting with curator Margaret Koenig and artists Hayley Salini and Ignacio Rocha. Thank you both, and and as well as you, uh, Margaret, for joining us. So, Thank, uh, you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Kicking off tonight, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival will be running through until the 11th of April. On the program last week, we spoke to Spiro Spiro Economopoulos, the program director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival. This week, we're talking to one of the filmmakers. Joining me on the line is Poppy Stockwell, the director of the documentary film Scrum. Poppy, good morning. Morning, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. Now, your documentary is looking at a gay rugby team, the Sydney Convicts, uh, in the lead-up to the Bingham Cup, an international gay rugby union tournament. What was it about uh, the team and the game and the subject matter that made you think there's a documentary in this? Well, um, in fact, I was approached by the club to make a film because I'd gone on tour with them in 2006 for their first ever Bingham Cup uh, campaign, and I went with them to New York. And um, I had a fab- fabulous time, and, we're, and a documentary came out of that um, called Walk Like a Man. And so when the club won the right to host the Bingham Cup in Sydney, they were looking for someone to make another film. And at first I thought, well, I've sort of been there, done that. But um, I remembered how much of a, an amazing time I'd had with the boys um, in 2006 and, and I jumped at the chance to make a film. So, yeah, a bit, of a bit of a story, a bit of a history with the club already. Clearly. Um, and that history then presumably meant that you already had the, the rapport that's really vital for a documentary maker to, to have the trust and the honesty that means their subjects will open up and almost treat you as if you're not there when you're filming. 
Yeah, I think that was the key, actually, um, to this film. I walked in and already I recognised sort of half a dozen faces um, and the coach that was the coach in 2006 was now... No, no, the captain that was... The captain in 2006 was now the coach, and once he sort of, you know, reassured all the players that I, that he knew, you know, what my intentions were, um, they were all on board, and they quickly sort of, well, I don't know if they forgot I was there, but they they accepted me, and I think that, you know, that is the key to, a, you know, observational documentaries, blending in with the background, not taking up too much space. Um, and letting it unfold, you know? Yeah, letting it unfold rather than, than pushing it and forcing a story to happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was it was huge honour to be a part of, you know, the locker room and, and the intimate conversations they were having because for these guys, they really treat it, you know, it's, it's their life. They work up, spend sort of 10 months working towards the Bingham Cup, um, training two times a week, playing on Saturdays, you know, sort of social touch on Sundays, socialize together you know some love together uh you know it's, it's a huge 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 aspect of their lives so it was yeah real really um quite an honor now for people who aren't familiar with the bingham cup it's named after mark bingham who was a, a gay man and a rugby uh fanatic is probably not uh, uh fanatic the word <laughs> <laughs> who uh died on united flight 93 on september 11 2001 uh and uh there's been much kind of written about him since it's certainly been suggested that he led the the rebellion of the hostages on the plane that forced the plane to crash before it could hit its target which i believe was the white house and since then the uh, gay rugby uh teams around the world have played the bingham cup in his memory uh and it, it, it's it's a fascinating story for me in, in many levels. I'm a gay man who <laughs> I'm not really into sport. Kind of like if I had to play kind of football in in high school, I ran the other way. So <laughs> I find it fascinating the way that some gay men have embraced the sport so viscerally and vividly, and the fact that um, from outside the queer community, there's also an enormous amount of support for the game as well. Mm, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it is quite a you know, unusual thing that uh, rugby of all sports has been so embraced by not only teams in Australia but across the world and in America too where rugby doesn't have a, you know, a cultural history there. Um, I think it's, you know, I think the beautiful thing about rugby is there's a there's a position on the team for all sizes. I think for a lot of a lot of sports, you know, you have to be a particular size or height or, or strength but with rugby there's, you know, you have the backs, the forwards, um yeah, so there's a spot for everybody. Um, and uh, I think it's, you know, it's a physical game. It's, you know, you can, it's a team game. Um, being a part of something bigger than yourself, I think, is, is something that's really attractive to a lot of guys. Um, and it's also a game that's, you know, traditionally been out of reach for a lot of gay men. Um, perhaps, you know, perhaps if, if it didn't have all the cultural hang-ups and baggage, you would have liked football when you were young, you know, the, the chance to be physical the chance to be a part of a team is a wonderful thing but I think for a long time in Australia you know sport has been the last bastion of homophobia um, so yeah, yeah these guys are trying to change that now Poppy what was uh, in terms of shooting and making the documentary what were some of the, the greatest challenges that you faced 
Uh, we had a very skeleton crew. There was three of us. So I was uh, directing, um, and then I had Jody Muston who shot, and Chris Frith, who was associate producing and, and sound recording. Um, so juggling, you know, sort of producing and directing, um, as well as looking after a crew, and, uh, you know, it was very stealth. Um, so it was a shoestring budget, um, but that was sort of had its advantages as well because we, you know, moved quickly and without too much fuss. Um, I was also, uh, big, probably the biggest challenge was I was working full-time at the same time as making the film, so I was direct um, series producing and writing a, a kids series, um, and then I would, on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, leave leave my day job and go and film the boys training and then on the weekends film them um, playing so juggling was it was big but, uh, um, the joy yeah. of multitasking yeah <laughs> exactly the joys of low low budget docos but uh, which is not something that you're unfamiliar with not only had you previously been involved as you said earlier in, in uh, filming the team but you've made documentaries for a range of, uh, of everything from the from the ABC and, and SBS to NITV and Foxtel so you're you're certainly an experienced documentary filmmaker so I would imagine that you already had to a degree a, a good awareness of the challenges you would face and how to work around them yeah i guess every project's you know got its own challenges um so you know uh, you sort of come at it with experience but also it's sort of new every time in a way um but uh yeah no it was it, it was absolutely wonderful making this film and you know what i tried to do as a filmmaker this time was push myself um and i used uh, I worked with a fashion filmmaker to edit the film, so I sort of moved away from a docu-narrative editor because um, I wanted to, to be a, an, ex an immersive experience for the audience, um, and I really wanted to, you know, explore the form of, of the rugby players and of the play itself. Um, and the other great thing that happened for this film is I, I collaborated with um, Colin Stetson, who scored the film, who's a playing um, touring band member of Bonnie Vera arcade fire and he just had a window of time to score scrum and he I didn't know but he'd just finished scoring 12 years a slave I think if I'd known that he'd scored that there's no way I would have had the you know the chutzpah to ask him to score this film but uh, he did and the music the music's epic very appropriate given the uh, the subject matter as well. Scrum is screening at the Melbourne Queer Film Festival this Sunday, the 3rd of April at Acme in Cinema 2 at 3.45pm. If you want to book, jump online, nqff.com.au to see uh, this uh, documentary about uh, the gay rugby club, the Sydney Convict, and their battle to, to not only play in but also host the Bingham Cup, an international gay rugby union tournament directed by Poppy Stockwell. Poppy, many thanks for speaking to us here at Triple R. I'm looking forward to sitting down on Sunday and watching the film with, uh, I imagine, a rather vocal audience given that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, kind of, I know there's a couple of uh, queer footy clubs here in town as well so I'm imagining they'll be out in force as well. Fantastic, thanks for the time.
My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'll blindfold myself and stand on a ladder. <laughs> well, that wasn't the gimmick. Um, the ladder came in with the swimming pool theme. I kind of wanted to make the stage uh, look a bit more like a swimming pool, and there are some great kind of visual uh, performance tricks that you can play with different heights of the performance space. It meant that I had to be in the uh, games room at Acme because it was the only festival space that had a flat floor stage, else I was going to fall off uh, with my blindfold. So no stages for this one. Um, yeah, and the idea of playing Marco Polo with a crowd, I often do a lot of um, interactions in my uh, shows and not kind of bullying like you get up now do something wacky but I just really want to talk to the people who come to see the show and I really want it to be specifically for the audience that comes every night and so to blindfold myself and just have this lovely uh, experiment really with a live crowd of how much you can interact with people and how much you can get them together and how many people you can pick out and remember their names and uh, weave them in later on with with other people in the show and so that people leave knowing that they've met everybody in the room without me ever seeing what I'm actually facilitating. That's really intriguing because I guess for a lot of people, they one of the reasons we enjoy live performance is because we're an anonymous part of a larger crowd. Yeah. So you're watching a show, but you're watching it with other people. So they laugh, that triggers your laughter yeah. and so forth. But there is still a degree of anonymity to that. Yes, and people also, I think, it, it kind of explores the reason that we do come out to live performances because quite often people will, you know, come to a stand-up show and sit right up the back because you don't want the comedian to look at you. You don't want to, like, you want to... So to almost give people a bit too much of what they want so that they come to you because, you know, halfway through the show, people are calling out and, you know, not raising their hands, they can't see them, <laughs> but, you know, people are really participating because they want to let me know that they're there because, you know, they're enjoying it and they don't want to just sit there in the darkness. They want to be like, oh, no. I, I I like to go for walks in the park sometimes. You're like, thank you. Who else likes to go for walks in the park? Okay, you've made friends. <laughs> so I'm okay. I'm already intrigued and amused, and I think <laughs> kind of uh, I'm going to have to come and see the show at some point. Now, how long have you been doing comedy? What what and what was it that made you think I want to do comedy to begin with? This is my ninth comedy festival in a row. So I've been performing just over eight years now. Um, I had quite crippling anxiety and shyness when I was about uh, 18 and 19. I couldn't leave the house. I couldn't talk to anybody. And stand-up was a really lovely way to kind of overcome that in that I kind of just decided one day that it's all I wanted to do was just talk to a lot of people. And it was the opposite of everything that I was, you know, kind of locked in with. So it was a really fun way to just, yeah, brutally... Uh, force yourself to head out on stage and have a conversation with a few hundred people. Because uh, I started in Perth where you do start with quite large crowds for something like the Triple J Royal Comedy Competition. You know, the uh, national f uh, grand final in WA I think is still, I think, 800 people or something like that. And that's on your third or fourth gig you turn up. <laughs> and so Just slightly terrifying. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it was something I really wanted to do. And when did you make the move from Perth to Melbourne? 
Um, three years ago now, so I've been here three years. I, I live in Fitzroy and I really love this city. It's beautiful. So that means that the year you moved to Melbourne was probably the, the year I first saw you performing. Um, in 2014, I'm trying to remember the name of the show that you did at Tuxi Pil- Pillow of Strength? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. Okay, so that was the year you moved to Melbourne. Cool. Yes, it was. Um, so does that mean that you then missed the explosion of Fringe World happening over in No, because that's my favourite. I love going back for Fringe in Perth every summer because it's such a lovely excuse to head back, stay there for six weeks, they import all my friends from around the world and I just <laughs> go to the beach for six weeks and it's really fun. Um, it's For people who listening who aren't familiar with Fringe World in Perth, it's a, it's a pretty new festival. It's only been around it's for about five years. Huge. And yeah, it's grown massively over such a short space of time. Why do you think Perth has responded with such gusto and delight to, to a Fringe Festival? Because it, it was their first one they got to have and we have such beautiful weather and open spaces so they can have all of the lovely outdoor venues and things and it's never going to rain. Um, there's still quite a lot of money in Perth so people are quite used to paying for tickets and food and people are happy to come out and you know spend a night of um, ent- on entertainment and shows and people haven't seen half of the acts that come over like these bizarre acts who are from you know Denmark or something like this you know, people go and watch a Danish clown and they've never seen anything like that and it's so much fun for them I think and how does your experience of Perth compare to uh, performing the Melbourne International Comedy Festival I, they're very different I, Perth French World usually do a shorter run so I, I only did eight shows in Perth and Melbourne's a bit of a slog at I think this year it's 24 shows in a row which uh, yeah, it just takes up your full month. But uh, the vibe at Melbourne Comic Festival I love because it is that designated stand-up kind of uh, very very comedy festival, of course. And it's just really fun to watch all sorts of different styles and remind people that stand-up is a, a genre. Comedy is a genre rather than a, a product. So I always liken it. Some people will go and see a stand-up that they don't enjoy and then they'll go, oh, no, I don't like stand-up comedy, which is the same I feel if you listen to a country song and said no I don't like music but you hadn't listened to any other kind yeah so and I mean the the broad range of of styles of comedy that is on the festival I mean I've only seen five shows so far I've been quite slack Mm. Um, (laughs) I I used to kind of like go and see two or three a night yeah Um, but kind of (laughs) I did also then get incredibly sick halfway through the festival you do it's it's a slog it's incredible how much of a toll it takes because you are just out watching you're out laughing and you just get tired and not only are you out laughing if you're doing the festival hard you're also then out and drinking at the festival club till 2 a.m or some pie face the pie face no the pie face next to the town hall closed down in the great pie face closure of 2015 and there's a lot of comedians just really struggling to walk the extra few blocks to the next one Speaking of 2015, that was a good year for you. You won the Golden Gibbo Award. I did. Which is presented uh, every year at the festival uh, in honour of uh, the late Linda Gibson and presented to a comedian doing... um, experimental, different, off, kind of, kind of, what's a, how do you describe the Golden Gibbo? <laughs> exactly like that. Um, yeah, something out of the box, something uh, the award says it has to um, encapsulate Linda's spirit of a little bit of defiance and a little bit of... Um, 
uh, you know, that, that proper energy behind it. So I did a show called Ghost Machine, which was a one-hour existential crisis performed by a ghost. Um, and apparently that's defiant enough. <laughs> so but it's certainly fun. kind of independent and non-commercial. Which yes, is, yeah. it's very non-commercial. So that's very much <laughs> in the spirit of the Golden Gibbo. It was also last year you won uh, the award for Best Comedy at Melbourne Fringe. Yes, same show. So good year for you. It was a really fun year. But and you, you tell yourself for so many years that it's not about awards because you don't win them and then somebody gives you some and it's nice but you've already kind of, you know, uh, internalize that message so it's just a nice little present and you go thank you that will help sell tickets but laura if you had such a great year last year and you got awards then what pressure does that place on you this year uh, so huge second going. album syndrome but you know it's it's my seventh album so <laughs> i'll just keep going i did want something completely different though so something i i really like about marco polo is it's a lot lighter in parts and it's a, a bit um, it's a bit warmer in, in parts than Ghost Machine was because that was uh, it was quite a bleak kind of you want, it was an existential crisis whereas this uh, reaches out to people a little bit more and is is quite warm and fun and a and little re- bit silly and reinforcing a sense of community well yeah that's exactly what it's for is to um, uh, we end the show we play Marco Polo I ask the audience questions until we find people who can be friends and they ask me questions and what I've been doing each night is just meeting one person at the end so uh, I met Frank and Stuart and Shelley and Daisy and Alex and um, Christina so I've done six shows so I've met six people and yeah if I ever see them on the tram or train then I will definitely know their faces because it's easier to remember <laughs> Laura Davis is performing in Marco Polo as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival at Acme in the Games Room, running through until the 17th of April. That shows every night, Tuesday to Sunday, 9.30pm Tuesday to Saturday, 8.30pm on Sunday. All the shows in the Comedy Festival around the the hub and main venues are an hour earlier on Sunday, so you can get your beauty sleep. But this Sunday, you get an extra hour to play around in. Oh, wow, thanks for reminding me. Yeah. Now, just before we go, Laura. Um, who have you seen in the festival that you would recommend or seen in other festivals that are playing here in Melbourne? A couple of tips because well, it's such a big program. It's, it's a huge program so and I understand it's very daunting. So definitely go check out the other two Mooseheads. So Kate Dannett got one as well for her show Shabamalam which is on directly before me. So that's a good double if you want to see both of us. And go see Tom Ballard who's doing Boundless Planes to Share which I is I saw it on amazing. Sunday night. I think it was Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and it was great. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and and then uh, outside of that, go and see Alistair tremblay Birchall at the Forum. Go see uh, Alice Fraser at the Forum and go and see um, Andrew McClellan also at the Forum, which is well, that makes a it good easy. little neat package for you. Park yourself at the Forum and then <laughs> cross over the road That's and go to That's how you should do it. Definitely, if you are planning a few nights of festival, it's just to pick you know, the little hub venues and you can go to Tuxedo Cat, which is an amazing um, alternative venue. You can go to Fort Delta, another amazing independent and just kind of pick a night and that's how you see shows back to back the easiest if you stay in the one place. Speaking of uh, Tuxedo Cat, had Michael Burgos in from uh, earlier who's performing his show, The Eulogy at Tuxedo Cat. So if you heard that, go and see him and then go and see two, two or three other shows at the Tuxedo Cat. So yes, I think, Laura, that's excellent advice. Choose a venue, and just see two or three shows back to back and 
pop yourself up to the bar in between. Because yeah, so, we, we, let's face it, all those venues night. kind of like uh, the, the venues do a little bit of uh, sale of booze does help with their, their, <laughs> their <laughs> bottom line and might make a show slightly funnier for you. Who knows? <laughs> Laura Davis, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And just a reminder, Marco Polo on until the 17th of April at Acme in the Games Room as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.